From the studios of KWAM in Memphis, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. On today's show, have you ever wondered what it would be like to try and live out every rule for dress, diet, and behavior that's listed in the Bible? Our guest, Rachel Held Evans, didn't just wonder. She spent an entire year trying to live a perfect life of biblical womanhood. Later on the broadcast, Travis Abels wonders what it means to live in an age of revolution both on and off the television screen. Stay tuned. What is it like to grow up believing one thing and then, as you get older, to begin to question that and to turn away from it and to even, in some ways, abandon the things that you've known since your childhood? This is not an abstract question to our guest, Rachel Held Evans. Raised in Dayton, Tennessee, Evans gradually began to question the conservative evangelical Christianity of her childhood. Her first... her published in 2010, explores the relationship between faith and doubt and recounts the challenges of asking tough questions about Christianity while living deep in the heart of the Bible Belt. Her second book, A Year of Biblical Womanhood, published this week by Thomas Nelson, documents a year-long experiment in which Evans attempted to follow all of the Bible's instructions for women as literally as possible. Rachel Held Evans, welcome to Things Not Seen. Well, thank you for having me. I sure appreciate it. Well, you spent a significant portion of your childhood in Dayton, Tennessee. And for the four listeners out there who don't know the significance of this of this small town, could you please just quickly rehearse <laughs> why we should know what Dayton, Tennessee is? <laughs> well, Dayton is awesome, first of all. It's a great little place to live. Best strawberries in the country. Um, but Dayton is also most famous for the Scopes Monkey Trial that happened back in 1925. That was when a public high school teacher, uh, John Scopes, was teaching evolution in public schools, and he was prosecuted because it was illegal at the time to teach evolution in public schools. And so he got support from the ACLU. Um, They came to his defense, and then the prosecutor in the case, one of the prosecutors was William Jennings Bryan, a famous orator and and ran for president three times. And so it turned into this, they called it the the, um, trial of the century, and Dayton was famous for like a total of three months, three weeks while the trial happened. And in fact, it was when H.L. Mencken was reporting on the uh, Scopes trial and, and sort of the culture surrounding it when he coined the term Bible Belt. So when people talk about, well, what's the true buckle of the Bible Belt? I always pipe in and say, oh, it's Dayton, Tennessee, because this is, this is where that phrase was coined. Uh, so that's sort of the background of my hometown, and, and that's what we're sort of famous for. You use uh, this childhood in, in Dayton, Tennessee, and your reflections and questioning that, that arose in the wake of that childhood as the basis for your first book, Evolving in Monkey Town. And there was a, a passage from that book that I want to, to just read a portion of and, and get you to expand upon. And it comes from the chapter called Living the Questions. And in that chapter you write, If I've learned anything over the past five years, it is that doubt is the mechanism by which faith evolves. It helps us cast off false fundamentals so that we can recover what has been lost or embrace what is new. It is a refining fire, a hot flame that keeps our faith alive 
and moving and bubbling about where certainty would only freeze it on the spot. And then you go on to write, I would argue that healthy doubt, questioning one's beliefs, is perhaps the best defense against unhealthy doubt, questioning God. And I wonder if you would expand upon that distinction that you make between healthy doubt and unhealthy doubt. How do we, how do we get more of the former and less of the latter? What is the mechanism by which we, we stay in healthy doubt without, helping, without allowing that to, to spill over into unhealthy doubt? Sure. Well, I think it's, it's a matter of holding our beliefs with an open hand and, and always being willing to evolve and change. And that's a, a scary place to be. I think there's a lot more security and certainty and, and in thinking, well, I've got all this figured out. I've got my faith figured out and God figured out, and, and I'm not going to ask difficult questions about anything. I mean, it, it's a little safer to be in that place, but, it, I, it, but faith is always a risk. And, and we have to be willing to risk being wrong. And that means holding what we believe with an open hand, because there's a really good chance that, that we don't have God all figured out and that, that maybe we're wrong about some things. And uh, I'm just as uncomfortable as everybody else being in that position of openness and, and willingness to question. But it's being in that place that helps us grow and stretches us and helps us get rid of some of, like I said, those false fundamentals that we think are essential to our faith or that we argue passionately for, but that might be wrong. We have to be willing to, to risk being wrong about some things. And, you know, when it comes to sort of demanding answers from God, that's when I think we've crossed over into some potentially dangerous territory. Uh, you know, this attitude of God has to explain himself to me. God has to answer this question. That's that's unhealthy, I think. I think that's that's demanding, and that's, that there's a belligerence there that I've, you know, I'm not immune from that at all myself. But thinking about one's theology or one's assumptions or one's interpretation of Scripture with a degree of doubt, I think, is really healthy and important. Uh, I think we have a lot of amazing leaders and 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 changers and reformers in church history to thank because they were doubters, because they asked questions about the status quo, because they asked questions about the teachings of the church and, um, you know, kind of rocked the boat a little bit. So it's a difficult balance to strike sometimes, but I think it's important that we, we try, and I think it's important that we ask tough questions and then hold those hold our convictions with an open hand so that if God wants to change our mind, our minds are open enough for God to do that. Now, you come to this position from having seen I what I would dare say would be both sides of the issue, because as you characterize your youth, you talked about how you uh, were not a person who wanted to hold your faith with an open hand, but instead you wanted faith to be a sort of check-the-box check sort of answer uh uh, very well laid out doctrinally kind of arrangement. And um, that that desire for God to be tame, for God to be domesticated, for God to answer all the questions, really drove not just your childhood, but the entire culture that you sort of describe in, in regard to your childhood. And I guess the question that I would ask then is, I assume that you're more comfortable now with the open-handed questioning, but I wonder sometimes, do you long for that time when you had assurance about your faith and all the questions answered. Oh, I do. In fact, often I long for that. And 
you know, the, but the reality was that even when I was sort of projecting that certainty, there were always these little nagging questions in the back of my mind. I was just too afraid to confront those honestly. So it, it wasn't that I was, you know, completely certain. It was just I was convinced I needed to be. <laughs> and so that drove a lot of my um, my feelings at the time. But I do sort of long sometimes to just, you know, be be settled in my faith um, and, and to have that, that sense of security that comes with thinking that you're right about everything. Um, I do miss that sometimes. I would be lying if I said I didn't. But I also know that it was in asking the questions that I've really been stretched and have grown more. And, and you know, sometimes growing is uncomfortable Evolving is uncomfortable and ugly and messy, but I, I really do believe that I'm a better, more engaged follower of Jesus uh, when I have my heart and my head intact and I'm I'm being honest with myself. Um, yeah, yeah. So it's, I mean, it, it's not easy, but I think that that's, you know, I think a lot of times back when I was a little bit more certain about things, it was because... Folks kept telling me, well, you just need to not ask those questions. You need to not be thinking about that. Just put that out of your mind. God's ways are higher than our ways. Don't ask these difficult questions about, you know, young earth creationism or whatever it was. And Or they would say, um, don't listen to your emotions. Don't listen to your heart on this, Rachel. You know, when I was asking questions about heaven and hell, and, and is it true that only a tiny minority of people will go to heaven and the rest of humanity will go to hell, most of whom have never heard of Jesus. I was questioning that. And they said, well, don't, you're just being, you know, these are humanistic inclinations you have, and, and you're, you don't need to listen to your heart. And so I made the difficult decision to try to follow Jesus with both my head and heart fully engaged. And that's a risk. That, that puts you in a very vulnerable position. But I couldn't go on just pretending like, I didn't have questions. I didn't, this wasn't a um, difficult for me and my intellectual integrity to believe that the earth is just 6,000 years old or, or whatever it may be. Or, oh, well, I'm not really bothered by the idea of Anne Frank going to hell or Gandhi going to hell. Like, I, ha- I had to be honest with myself and say, okay, this troubles me at an intellectual level, this troubles me at an emotional gut level, and, and maybe there's a reason for that. And so I feel like I'm more in fully engaged in my faith now than I used to be because I'm trying my best to be honest with myself and honest with other people. And it's harder, but it's, it's also a lot more rewarding when you have those breakthroughs and you think, oh, I think I understand this better now. Or, oh, look, God could handle these tough questions. God can handle uh, these objections that come to my mind, and, and God wants me to be honest those. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Rachel Held Evans, author of Evolving in Monkey Town, How a Girl Who Knew All the Answers Learned to Ask the Questions, and The Year of Biblical Womanhood, released recently from Thomas Nelson Publishers. One of the things that happened this week uh, that got me thinking about this interview was that the Pew Research Forum on American Religious Life released a recent study, and the results of that study that said that for the first time in America's history, we have moved from being a majority Protestant nation to Protestants losing the majority 
in the United States. And I was wondering, as I was hearing that this week, what your initial reaction to that was first and what you think that means for America. Oh, yeah. You know, I wasn't that surprised, and and I'm not really that alarmed either, just because um, I think sometimes we think that the only way we can really make the gospel relevant is if we are in a majority, and and there's sort of the sense of, oh, we're losing power, but I actually think the gospel thrives among the powerless, and so I'm not particularly concerned or threatened by the numbers. but, of course, you know, and I haven't spent a lot of time digging into them to see, well, what might explain this. But I talked to a lot of young people who um, have struggled with doubts about their faith and questions about their faith, and a lot of them tell me, almost all of them tell me, that they don't feel like church is a safe place to do that. And so I think that might be contributing to some of these numbers, this sense of, you know, when I walk into church, I have to have it all together. When I identify as Christian, that means uh, I have to have my act together, I have to have answers for everything, I can't be struggling with uncertainty or doubt or asking tough questions. And so I think that if we made the church a little more hospitable to to people with questions and people who have doubts, uh, that maybe we would see a difference in those numbers. But a lot of folks I know, a lot of my peers actually, as soon as they start having questions about their faith, they feel like they have to leave Christianity or leave Protestantism, and that's a real shame. I really I hope we can create a better environment for folks like that, because I'm one of those people, too, <laughs> and it can be really hard to fit in into the church. So that's sort of my little soapbox that I get on anytime <laughs> these numbers come out. I say, we've got to make the church a more hospitable place for doubters and questioners and, and people with struggling with tough questions, because if we don't, people feel like as soon as they start asking those questions, they have to head out the door. Now, you identify yourself as one of those people who maybe sometimes feels like you're being pushed out the door of mainline religion. But what I found interesting uh, was that in this year when the Pew Research Forum discovered that Protestants were were losing their majority, you uh, chose instead over the past couple of years to go in the opposite direction. And you, you explored what it was like to live a life of biblical womanhood. So you grew out your hair, you made your own clothes, you kept your head covered, you obeyed your husband, you rose before dawn, you didn't gossip, you remained silent in church, and you even camped out uh, once a month during your menstrual cycle, uh, according to the, to the uh, report that I've read. I wonder, what was it that drove you to go in this opposite direction, to go deeper into a very conservative style of Christian life? Right. Well, and I only did the camping out thing once. I couldn't do that every single month. So one month I focused on um, the Levitical purity laws, and that, those are really challenging because for the 12 days, there's for, you're during your period and seven days after, you're not allowed to touch anybody at all. You can't touch any men. So I couldn't hug my husband or give anybody a high five or shake anybody's hand. And so that was a very strange, <laughs> awkward week. Um I went to a wedding, and there was dancing, and people were like, Rachel, come up and dance. And I had to say, well, I can't because I'm on my period, which, you know, was awkward. So I had a bunch of crazy things like that happen all year. But what 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 made me decide to try to follow all the Bible's instructions for women as literally as possible for a year was because I was getting a lot of messages from sort of the evangelical Christian culture that I live in that women ought to pursue, quote-unquote, biblical womanhood. And that biblical womanhood means submitting to your husband, um, not taking any kind of leadership positions in the church, n- not preaching, not teaching, um, and then, s- then staying in the home and working from the home, 
raising children and not pursuing a career, that sort of thing. So that was sort of the message I kept getting over and over and over again about what biblical womanhood was. But, you know, if you take any time to, to really study Scripture, we see that biblical womanhood is a lot more complicated than that, that it really can't be reduced to a list of acceptable roles and rules because, on the one hand, we have women in Scripture who are celebrated for living lives that don't look anything like that, like Deborah, who was the commander-in-chief of Israel and a major prophet. Huldah is another example, Miriam. Uh, and then, on the other hand, there are a lot of elements of biblical womanhood that we prefer not talk about when we're instructing women to pursue biblical womanhood, like the Levitical purity laws, like the fact that the Apostle Paul in the New Testament says, a woman who prays without her head covered disgraces her head. And so the whole experiment was kind of an object lesson in selectivity. And I wanted to point out the fact that anytime we talk about biblical anything, biblical families, biblical manhood, biblical womanhood, we're being selective. We're, we're choosing some things from the Bible and leaving out others. And sometimes what we choose and what we to follow, what we, choose, what we select, says more about us than the Bible itself. And I really hate seeing the Bible reduced an adjective, you know, as if the Bible has just one thing to say about something as beautiful and complex and mysterious and layered as womanhood um, or manhood or families. And that's one thing I love about the Bible is that we really can't cram it into a list of do's and don'ts or a bullet list of bullet points. So the whole the whole project, I had a lot of fun with it, obviously. I did some kind of crazy things. Um, I had to grow out my hair and cover my head and, and all kinds of strange things like that. But the whole point of it was to show, hey, guess what? None of us are actually practicing biblical womanhood 100%. So let's be a little more careful with how we use the Bible and how we speak about women. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest this week is the author and blogger Rachel Held Evans. Evans is the author of Evolving in Monkey Town, How a Girl with All the Answers Learned to Ask the Questions. Evans is also the author of A Year of Biblical Womanhood, How a Liberated Woman Found Herself Sitting on Her Roof, Covering Her Head, and Calling Her Husband Master, released this week by Thomas Nelson Publishers. You can hear more from our interview online at our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. We'll be back in a moment with more of our conversation with Rachel Held Evans after this short break. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we offer a rich conversation about culture and faith. Our guest this week is Rachel Held Evans. Raised in Dayton, Tennessee, the home of the Scopes Monkey Trial, Evans gradually began to question the conservative evangelical Christianity of her childhood. Evans is a writer and is the author of A Year of Biblical Womanhood, How a Liberated Woman Found Herself Sitting on Her Roof, Covering Her Head, and Calling Her Husband Master. She hosts the popular blog at rachelheldevans.com. In your book, Evolving in Monkey Town, you, you populate the landscape of your narrative with characters who are citizens from Dayton, Tennessee, the town where you live. And one of the characters that we meet early on is a, a woman that you call June the Ten Commandments Lady. And one of the things that uh, I remember from reading that chapter about June the Ten Commandments Lady is that she has a general store, and out in front of her store she has a sign that has sort of the movable letters like you oftentimes see in front of, in front of uh, businesses. 
and she would oftentimes give what she thought were morally improving messages uh, on these signs. And one of the messages that stood out to me was higher education equals moral degradation. And I thought about that when you a moment ago said that you wanted to engage these questions about God with your head and your heart fully engaged. And that got me thinking about the fact that your father is a professor. He, is a, he, he teaches and has studied theology uh, and, and religious matters all of his life. Was growing up with, with a person who was actually involved in higher education uh, a factor, do you think, in, in making you more open to these sorts of questions? Or do you think that you would have been open to these questions and drawn to these sort of head and heart issues, regardless of, of what, your, what your family life was like? Oh, well, I think my parents were critical in making this a possibility for me to ask these questions and still feel safe. Because my dad, you know, he was a, he, I looked up to him as the expert on God, you know, because he had gone to seminary and had degrees and had studied this his whole life. And, and I saw my dad as this expert. But he always knew when to say, I don't know. And so when I was really struggling with certain questions or even as a child, and I had really severe eczema growing up on my skin, and so there were times when I was really angry to be in that situation and and to be struggling and and for people to be making fun of me. And instead of telling me, well, God is doing this because of this, that, and the other, or, well, this is why God wants this to happen to you, my dad would always say when I would ask him why is this happening, he would say, Rachel, I don't know. And so to see somebody in my life model great wisdom and also a willingness to say I don't know was really important to me moving forward as I started asking questions about my faith. I felt comfortable enough to live in that space of I don't know, which in the surrounding culture was not always appreciated. I, you know, growing up, I really was immersed in the apologetics movement of the 80s and 90s and evangelicalism, and and there was an attitude of, well, the last thing you want to say is, I don't know. You have to always be ready with an answer. So it was great that my parents both modeled for me the ability to be strong in one's faith, but also not to assume you always have to have an answer for everything. And so that was, I, I think, their example really helped me as I wrestled with these questions because they had already modeled for me what it means to be a person of faith uh, and not necessarily always be certain about everything, not always having to have an answer. Well, in in addition to being willing to say, I don't know, I also remember from your recounting of your father that he there was one point where he said not only that he didn't know, but that the one thing that he was certain of in the moment of that questioning was that God loved you. And what yeah. what struck me about that was what you said earlier about the way that uh, Christianity, and in some ways in particular evangelical Christianity, has conducted itself with the, the, the sort of loss of Protestant majority here in America. You, you characterized one of the reasons for that as this kind of refusal to allow questions. And how do you think that the church would change if we adopted this attitude of simply saying, I don't know the answer to all the questions, but what I do know in this moment is that God loves you? Oh, I would love to see that. I would love, and I'm trying my best to encourage church leaders to do that better and to, um, to create those spaces where people can ask difficult questions and wrestle, because there's this attitude of, 
that doubts and questions are for people outside of the church, outside of faith. But I really think that that's part of what makes Christianity Christianity, what makes it great, and and it's part of what will help sustain Christianity here in the U.S. is if we're willing to engage our heads and hearts and our faith. And and that was the security I always had growing up was this knowledge that there was space to wander and to question and to wrestle, but I always knew that God loved me. My parents, and I always knew my parents loved me and they modeled that for me. And so to, to create that sense of belonging before even believing, I think is really important for the church. We are a community of people and, and, and folks need to feel like they can come and be a part of this community and eat the bread and take the wine and, and, and be in this, this loving community of people regardless of, you know, what they're questioning or asking at the time. And we have this attitude, particularly in evangelicalism, of you have to have all your ducks, your theological ducks in a row before you get to take communion or, or to participate in church. You have to sign this belief statement, and it has to be unequivocal, and you, you can't have any questions, you can't have any doubts, you have to be on board with us theologically before we embrace you and love you and care for you. And I think we need to, that that's completely backwards, that we love and embrace and care for everyone that, that comes through the doors that, that is a part of our life. They don't have to believe certain things to be loved first. That's not how God treats us. Why would we treat other people that way? Uh, God loves us unconditionally, and, and God will do all to make that love known to us. So this idea of we'll start loving you and embracing you once you've agreed with us is is just so destructive, and it just creates no space for folks who might be like me. I grew up in a culture where I was told if you believe in evolution, you're going to hell, and you're not really a Christian, and you don't believe the Bible. And so I really thought that I had to choose between my evolution, believing in evolution, and my Christian faith. Now, my parents didn't teach me that. I just heard that in, you know, from Sunday school teachers and actually college professors. And so when we create that dichotomy for people, you know, you, <laughs> and then they go to a, you know, college biology class, realize that, oh, actually there's quite a bit of scientific evidence to support evolution, they feel like they have to choose. And if the church has been the, the place that tells them, hey, you're going to have to choose between your faith and evolution, well, guess what they're going to do? They're going to believe what they've been told this whole time and then ditch their faith. And I think that's one of the, the currents behind some of these new numbers that are out is that we've created so many false dichotomies about well, here's what you have to believe, here's what you have to think in order to be a Christian, that as soon as people start to head into that territory, they believe what they've been told and they choose. They make that difficult choice between their faith and their intellectual integrity. And it just doesn't have to be that way. And, and we don't all have to agree on everything to create spaces of um, safety where people can ask these difficult questions and wrestle through these difficult questions without feeling like they're going to get kicked out or excluded from the group. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Rachel Held Evans, author of Evolving in Monkey Town, How a Girl Who Knew All the Answers Learned to Ask the Questions, and The Year of Biblical Womanhood, released this week from Thomas Nelson Publishers. Well, and since that time, since leaving the, the newspapers, you've begun to devote a good deal of your writing time to blogging. 
And this is a relatively new medium. I mean, it really has become popular in maybe the last five or six years. Uh, what is your favorite part about blogging? And you can either contrast that to, to writing for newspapers or just talk about it completely on its own. Uh, what I love about blogging is that you're always in communication with your readers. And so I, I never I, I try to write a blog post every single day, um, and I don't always get one up every day. But the benefit is that I get to sort of test out some ideas, test out some uh, writing on my readers, and immediately get feedback. Of course, that's a double-edged sword because <laughs> sometimes the feedback isn't good, or sometimes people criticize what you have to say. But I love sort of just talking. I feel like the blog is a way for me to have a conversation with my readers every single day. And so it builds, obviously, it builds your reader base up, which is great, uh, but it also gets, keeps you speaking with them and talking with them and getting their input. And I feel like a lot of uh, a year of biblical womanhood, I tested so many of those ideas out on my readers and had so many conversations that led to the writing and executing of that book that I feel like it's sort of our book, you know. And I love having that camaraderie and sense of partnership with my readers, which I don't know that authors in the past have gotten to have that. You know, it used to be you'd sort of just write in seclusion, share it with a few people, and then boom, it's out for the, the world to read. Now I feel like it's a real partnership uh, between me and my readers, and, and I really have learned a lot from them. Sometimes the comment section, often the comment section is a better read than the original <laughs> blog post. And I, I'm really grateful because I have one of those rare readerships that the comments are almost always very constructive and really civil and not always, but almost almost always. And, and so I'm just incredibly grateful for that opportunity. Um, I mean, sometimes it gets hard because you're, you're putting yourself out there and making yourself vulnerable every single day. But that's, that's part of the writing process. And it's just, I always tell people, I, my boss is not my publisher. My boss is not bookstores. My, you know, my boss is my readers. <laughs> so my readers are my boss. And so I try really hard to listen to them and to get their input. And it, it's really made the writing process, which can be really lonely, feel a lot more collaborative. Well, now that the book is done and is getting ready to come out, and you've finished this year-long experiment in, in these biblical practices, I wonder is there anything that you're going to carry with you into your everyday life from your experiments in biblical womanhood? Did anything stick? Oh, yeah. A few things did. I, I did learn how to cook, which is, <laughs> I couldn't before, <laughs> so, or not well. And so I've actually really enjoyed cooking. Never thought that would be the case. And uh, not so much sewing, though. I'm pretty terrible at that. I won't be keeping that. But some other things, uh, for instance, one month I decided to focus on silence, and I wanted to look at both the upside and the downside of silence. I wanted to look at the ways women have, Scripture has been used to silence women in the past and, and, and talk about what's troubling about that. But I also wanted to look at silence as, as something that's positive because there's a big difference between being silenced and silencing oneself. And uh, we had this great Christian tradition of folks like Teresa of Avila who, who were masters at silencing themselves before God. And so... For the project, I went to a Benedictine monastery for a couple of days um, and just focused on silence and nurturing a contemplative heart and spirit. And that was such a great experience. Well, now that this project is done, I assume that you're going to focus for a while on the blog and maybe developing some new ideas. But I'm wondering, is there anything on the horizon? What can we expect as the next project for you in terms of your writing? Well, I'm really struggling with trying to decide right now because I have a lot of different ideas 
but I don't really want to commit to anything. Uh, but the contemplative, that contemplative spirit and that contemplative um, attitude and approach is something I'd like to explore at some point because I think in our culture now we have a difficult time. We're all so busy. We have a different t- difficult time creating sacred time and space where we just stop and are silent before God. And so I think that would be something interesting to write about. Or I might want to keep writing about women in the church because I find that to be a really interesting topic. Or I might write about just church in general and end this struggle to find and fit into church. So I'm, I'm, my agent is, has about had it with me because they keep putting off committing to another book idea. But, you know, like I, I'll probably test some of those ideas out on my readers, see how they respond, and, and see what they're most interested in. But I'm, I'm having a difficult time nailing down one idea. But um, I'm sure I'll, I'll, I'll settle soon. I kind of want to finish this, see this book, this new book, all the way through to release day before I start writing another one, just because this one has been such a... It's been a struggle and a joy from the beginning, and I've invested every ounce of my energy and every ounce of my being into this project, so I really want to finish it before I start something new. Well, Rachel Held Evans, I've really enjoyed speaking to you today, and thank you so much for being our guest. It was a pleasure. Thanks so much for the fantastic conversation. Rachel Held Evans is a blogger and author. She lives in Dayton, Tennessee. She's the author of Evolving in Monkey Town, How a Girl Who Knew All the Answers Learned to Ask the Questions, and A Year of Biblical Womanhood, How a Liberated Woman Found Herself Sitting on Her Roof, Covering Her Head, and Calling Her Husband Master, which has been released this week by Thomas Nelson Publishers. After the break, Travis Abels gives us a glimpse into the revolutionary fervor that has gripped several television shows this fall season. We'll be back in a moment. Please stay with us. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we offer you a rich conversation about culture and faith. It's not just the change of seasons. Revolution is in the air. Our media critic, Travis Abels, has been keeping an eye on recent developments on television that tap into this spirit of turmoil and change. He offers this reflection. Revolution is everywhere these days. The 2010 midterm elections are now famous for the sudden appearance of the Tea Party, an organization based on radical mistrust of the purported big government socialism of the Obama administration. Apart from backing politicians like Michelle Bachman and Paul Ryan, who quickly rose to national prominence, the movement became known for reports of its more radical elements, such as supporters who brought guns to rallies, made occasional calls for armed rebellion against the Obama administration, and questioned the president's citizenship, or raised worries about his supposed Muslim sympathies. Beyond the Tea Party, you see similar themes elsewhere. An editorial in the conservative Catholic magazine First Things recently contemplated the possibility of civil disobedience over the health care mandate of the Affordable Care Act and its coverage of contraception. Likewise, the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops organized a fortnight for freedom this summer, appealing to the great tradition of First Amendment freedom of religion to argue that Catholic pro-life convictions were under attack, and warning against totalitarian incursions against religious liberty. Ministers on the religious right, like James Dobson, Franklin Graham, or Stephen Andrew, have accused Obama of being hostile to Christianity, a socialist, or even an antichrist. It's election season, after all, and tempers are running high, as they always do when Americans perceive themselves to be in a period of major transition and change. And when Americans face crisis, we seem to get nostalgic. 
we have a tendency to look back to the Founding Fathers, the American Revolution, and the creation of the Constitution to provide a kind of political and moral compass that gets us back on track. It's a way of idealizing the past, and a myth of our origin as a Christian nation, from the first pilgrims to the alleged Christian faith of the Founding Fathers. Despite historians' continual work to demonstrate that evangelical Christianity was the furthest thing from most of the Founders' minds. More persuasive for many has been the rhetorical tradition many of us will remember Ronald Reagan for. The past few days when I've been at that window upstairs, I've thought a bit of the shining city upon a hill. The phrase comes from John Winthrop, who wrote it to describe the America he imagined. What he imagined was important because he was an early pilgrim, an early freedom man. He journeyed here on what today we'd call a little wooden boat. And like the other pilgrims, he was looking for a home that would be free. I've spoken of the shining city all my political life but I don't know if I ever quite communicated what I saw when I said it. But in my mind, it was a tall, proud city built on rocks stronger than oceans, windswept, God-blessed, and teeming with people of all kinds living in harmony and peace. In light of all this rhetoric of freedom, resistance to tyranny, and national Christian character, it's interesting to note how some of these ideas have been appearing in TV shows over the last couple of years. Two in particular come to mind. TNT's Falling Skies, which finished its second season a few months ago, is set in the aftermath of an alien invasion that wipes out American civilization. Small bands of survivors organize militias to mount a resistance against the alien overlords, who are subjecting their children to some kind of brainwashing that turns them into collaborators. This season's unexpected big hit has been NBC's Revolution, which takes place in the latest idea from J.J. Abrams' collection of cocktail napkins. The power goes out all over the world, and in the next 15 years, civilization crumbles, people gather in local agrarian communities, while militias seize their guns and exercise a tyrannical rule of swift deportation and summary execution. I am here under the orders of General Sebastian Monroe himself. He personally asked me to find two men. You and your brother. Hold on just a second. I'm, I'm going to have to ask you to come with us under the authority of the Monroe Republic. Why? Do I have to repeat myself? I just don't understand. Here's what you need to understand. I have been searching for you for a very long time through mud and filth away from my home and my wife and my bed. So I'm in a mood. I'm sure you can understand that. So do yourself a favor and climb in that wagon. Or so help me, I will conscript all of your children and I will re-educate them until they no longer remember your names. Are we clear? Neither show's great, though both have their moments, and they're very different, since in Revolution the militias are the bad guys, while in Falling Skies they're our last best hope. The shows are interesting for how much they couch their tropes of resistance against tyranny and post-apocalyptic survival in the same kind of rhetoric that I just discussed. Both imbue themselves with the trappings of the American Revolution. For example, the 2nd Massachusetts Militia of Falling Skies evokes the Continental Army led by George Washington, and Revolution's villain is the general and president of the Monroe Republic. Both draw on the American idealization of the Revolutionary War to heighten the dramatic stakes of the familiar post-apocalyptic theme of a power, whether human or alien, that seizes control in the midst of chaos and social degradation. 
You can also detect in both shows a reflection of the current deep anxiety about the state of America and the urgency of the appeal in many quarters to America's revolutionary origins. A right-wing reading of both shows is very possible, as both seem to be premised on some kind of local-based resistance to a tyrannical national power. Falling Skies is more prone to dwell on the hope of the restoration of American greatness, while Revolution seems to champion the kind of anti-federalism which has long been used by advocates of states' rights. But that's not to say that either show is necessarily politically reactionary or trying to get us to vote for Romney. The Revolutionary War themes are more there to illustrate the struggle with familiar rhetorical and symbolic traditions than they are to encode political allegories. Notably absent from either show is any mention of religion, which, as I mentioned earlier, often lies at the heart of nostalgic appeals to the Founding Fathers. That's not too surprising, but it does speak to a high degree of selectivity in these appeals. The shows don't engage in revisionist history so much as they pillage America's collection of symbols and myths to stoke fear and outrage. That's fine in a mediocre television show. Less excusable is the same technique in political discourse. Travis Abels is visiting assistant professor of historical theology at Eden Theological Seminary. He lives with his family in St. Louis. This Saturday in Faith in Memphis, Dr. Scott Morris, founder of the Church Health Center, and his fellow Faith in Memphis panelists discuss in very personal terms the spiritual factors in dying well. Meanwhile, writer Bill Sorrell takes a look at one young man's conversion experience at a Christian haunted house known as Judgment House. Things Not Seen is sponsored in part this week by the Liturgical Press of Collegeville, Minnesota. Since 1926, they've been dedicated to providing religious and spiritual resources of the highest relevance and quality to the Christian community. Find out more about the Liturgical Press at litpress.org. The Liturgical Press also sponsors the Rock and Theology Project, which we highlighted in broadcast number 1210. Find out more at rockandtheology.com. If you're in the Memphis area, please stop by and visit the Things Not Seen display in the Religion section at the booksellers at Laurelwood. There you'll find books from many of our authors that we feature here on the show. If you don't live in Memphis, please visit us online at our store for books and other items at thingsnotseenradio.com. Things Not Seen is a production of Sandberg Media, LLC. We record the show at the studios of KWAM News Talk 990 in Memphis, Tennessee. AM 990 is not responsible for the views expressed on this program. Additional production for this week took place in St. Louis, Missouri. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keija. Jeff Krause engineers the show. Our staff includes Travis Abels, David J. Dunn, Alexander Badenoch, and David Merrill. Katie Scroggin is our senior producer. You can follow us on Twitter at NotSeenRadio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and to find out more about upcoming guests. That's Facebook.com slash ThingsNotSeenRadio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and hear extra audio from our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.